And uh, I'm really excited, actually. This week's been a really interesting week. We've been uh, going, there was devotionals all through the week, and I, some of you I noticed were there at least on Friday for the uh, Good Friday service, and they've been looking at it from Matthew's perspective. And it's, so it's, and this morning as well, the sermon was looking at it from Matthew's perspective, and he even talked about this, that there's, in the different Gospels, we kind of have these different angles. And so uh, we're going to kind of be looking at this a little bit differently from John's view, which is definitely a different one and an interesting one. And we're going to go, we're starting at the empty tomb this week, which is appropriate. It's Easter Sunday. Happy Easter to all of you, by the way. It's uh, what an exciting time to be celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we're starting there today and looking at John's account of that, of the first moments of the empty tomb. And over the next couple weeks, we're going to go and finish off the book of John, the last two chapters, and these really key stories and how Jesus interacts with various people, various disciples, uh, before, he, before John ends the book. Now, last week, we finished off our series, Heroes and Villains. Going, We went all the way through the book of Judges. It was a really interesting book. It's definitely one that's uh, graphic and a little bit over the top in places and uh, had a lot of questions about different things that uh, are mentioned in that book. But uh, we ended off the uh, Heroes and Villains series and we actually ended looking at Samson and his sacrifice, He kind of how he lays down his life and looked at it and how it kind of connects us to Jesus Christ. And we looked at Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, and that when Jesus said, it is finished, I love that we ended with that song where we kind of repeat that, it is finished, that when Jesus said that, he meant it. It was there that the cost that was due for the sins of humanity, they were paid in full, once and for all, all the, the present sins, the past sins, and all future sins were paid for in full in that moment as he said, it is finished. But The cross was not the end for Jesus. And that's what we're looking at today. That through, though this uh, work on the cross is done and finished and completed, that the penalty of sin is death and it was quenched. It was paid for on the cross. That the proof of this, the great kind of evidence of Jesus' work on the cross is that today he's alive. He is alive today and he has risen. And today that's going to be pretty much all we're going to be talking about. I'm probably going to say he has risen or something along that line many times because I'm so excited. This is it, guys. This is, as believers, this is the key element of our belief that Jesus is alive, that he's not dead anymore. So it's something to get excited about at least once a year anyway. So that's what we're going to do today. Before we dive in any deeper, though, I want to pray and give this time over to God. Father, we, as always, thank you first and foremost for your word that we can come together, study your word, look at what you want to teach us, what you want to show us through these awesome, amazing scriptures that you've given us. So we ask that you would open our hearts, open our minds, open my heart and and my mind that your word is spoken, your truth is proclaimed, Lord, and that your revelation of your resurrection, God, is revealed to us or renewed in our hearts again, that we have a joy that comes with knowing that we serve a risen Jesus. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. So today we're going to be starting in chapter 20. So if you have a Bible and you want to follow along, you can bring that out. And uh, there are two viewpoints kind of mentioned or looked at or discussed, if you will, in this uh, passage we're going to be looking at. We're going to be going from verse 1 through to 18, where we see first kind of John's recollection of the events, kind of how he looks back and recalls all the things exactly how they were went down, how they were all laid out on that first Easter. And the other view is that of Mary Magdalene, which is one of the most fascinating individuals I think we see in uh, the gospel. She's, we don't know a lot about her, but there's something quite magnificent that she follow, we see how she follows Jesus all through his ministry. And she is the first person who sees Jesus as risen. And how amazing that is. So, to start though, I think we should just set the scene, kind of lay down the groundwork for what's happening, what's going on in the story before we dive into it. So we'll start with verses 1 and 2 of chapter 20. So early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So the scene opens like this, with a shock, a surprise that Jesus is gone. And Mary wouldn't have been alone. And the other, if we look at the other gospel, she went with the other Mary. There's a lot of Marys in Throughout the Gospels, I've been finding out more and more. And um, she, would have, she was going there to apply spices and oils. Some, it was customary to do that and to go and uh, kind of after burial preparations. And instead of being able to go there already still feeling the wound, feeling the heartbreak of seeing him crucified she suddenly stumbles upon an empty tomb. And I can imagine there was confusion. There was uh, uncertainty about what had happened. And she had no idea where he is. No idea what had happened to her Lord. She assumes that they have taken him. We're not sure what she means. She could have been referring to most likely the Romans had maybe moved his body or maybe the Jewish leaders we're trying to avoid any scandal with the body later, and maybe we're hiding it. And she didn't know what was going on. She just knew that he wasn't there. And so this panic sets in, this kind of, you can feel almost the emotion in the way that she proclaims this, that he's not there. And this quickly is spread to Peter and John. I can just imagine her kind of, Running in the room. I mean, let's picture this. She just came to the tomb to see his, his dead body and it wasn't there. So with panic, her and the other Mary run as fast as they can. They burst through the door, panting out of breath. They come up to, to Peter. And by the way, the one whom Jesus loved is always referring to John. That's how he refers to himself. A bit uh, humble. And... 
he, she bursts through the door and finally catches her breath. Peter and John are probably like, what's going on? What happened? I don't know. You know, looking at each other, confused. The panic is spreading to them already before a word is even spoken. And then finally catching her breath, frantically, she bursts out the words, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. And that leads us into verse 3. And I'll read verse 3 through 10 where we see John's kind of recanting, revisiting exactly what happened after this point. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now, there are two things that I want us to kind of pay attention to or notice in John's kind of unfolding of these events. And there's kind of this what and why aspect. The, the what is kind of to notice this intense, this kind of a labels of, levels of a descriptive intensity that are unfolding here of, of kind of how they find out the news, there's running and there's kind of this panic feeling in the text, I feel like. There's this kind of emotion attached to it. That they, and we see in verse 9, they didn't remember that Jesus, that from, they didn't remember from Scripture. They had kind of forgotten, oh yeah, Jesus is supposed to rise from the dead. But I think uh, in the realm of this whole situation, it's easy to be overwhelmed. I mean, they just saw Jesus die. Now his body's gone. We've got Mary running through the door, kind of, you know, panting and freaking out. And, you know, what's going on? There, there's a lot of uncertainty and then we have the whys. Why are all these kind of vivid details given? Some of them seem a little bit unnecessary. I always read the, the part about John. Again, he's the one whom Jesus loved. Uh, beating Peter as they get to the tomb. And he mentions it even twice. So it's like he really wants us to know he's faster than Peter. And I always found like, all right, okay, you can let us know you got there first, but I mean, you don't need to emphasize it twice. And it just seemed a little bit unnecessary, a little redundant to make this point that he was faster than Peter. And, uh, and it's, it seems kind of funny. It seems kind of out of place. But John goes even further. He tells us exactly where everything was lying, how it was lying, who got there first, who who went in first, kind of really laying out all the details of this moment-by-moment experience. And I believe that there's a reason that John remembers every detail of this event so vividly. 
Because we have to remember, John's writing this after it happened. You know, he wasn't taking notes as he was running. He literally was, you know, this was kind of looking back. He's looking back on this moment. And so we have to understand that as he's writing this, he has the foresight of, to know what these events really meant. Which is why he emphasizes that at the time, he, they had forgotten. They had, weren't aware that Jesus, or had forgotten that Jesus was supposed to rise from the dead. And so we see this kind of uh, looking back and remembering that this moment, remembering the emotion and remembering the vividness of the situation. And I think this was both a terrifying experience for him because of the panic and because of the uncertainty of not knowing where Jesus was. Where was his body taken? What had they done with him? And also, it was an awesome moment. As he looked back, I think he kind of maybe even has this smile of, of kind of knowing what it all meant. And so the first, looking at it from this kind of terrifying moment as he's aware that the tomb is empty, not knowing what had happened to his Lord. And I know it seems kind of over the top, but I think of tragic or dramatic moments in my life that I remember so vividly. And, and one that's, I mean, it's, one that I think is quite vivid for most Americans is, of course, 9-11, which is this kind of, or anybody over 30 at least. And uh, it's this kind of uh, moment where I can look back and I can remember specifically hearing the news and watching, sitting on the floor with my parents and watching the news and feeling this kind of sense of uncertainty, especially because my parents were so distraught about what had happened and I remember every detail. It's strange how vivid the memory is. I remember even the pajamas I was wearing at the time. And I think for John, as he's looking back at this moment, as he had just seen Jesus Christ, his Lord, the one that he had been following, crucified on a cross, and now his body is gone this moment stuck in his mind down to the very last detail, which is why I think he makes the point of passing it on to us, even making sure we know that he was just a little bit faster than Peter. But there's this other side to it. Because as John, again, he's writing this as he's kind of looking back on this moment. It's also this kind of reflection of knowing and understanding what this really meant. That, so as he's writing this, he's already seen Jesus. He's already seen the risen Lord. And so it's also this exciting moment because now it's all clear. He's, he knows that Jesus wasn't stolen or moved. He was risen. And so with that in mind, I, I'm reminded of another great moment in my life where that was filled with joy, that as I look back, I can remember so vividly the moment I proposed to my wife. And uh, I remember all the details. I remember, like, the sun was setting. I'm not going to tell you guys the whole story. Sorry, if you want to, you can ask me another time. But it was, it was beautiful. It was, like, perfect. We were in the jungle. I remember the lily flowers kind of floating in a river behind us. And most importantly, I remember that she said yes, and how I felt, and how relieved I was. 
And so, and I remember it very vividly, even to the way I felt and the way I was, what I was wearing. And my point is that for John, as he, is ref- as he reflects back on this day where he sees the empty tomb, it's this day filled with both solemn memories and memories of joy and excitement and hope for the future. He's remembering his confusion and his concern and his panic as he was uncertain about what it all meant and where his Lord had been moved. But then with a smile, he also remembers the significance of this awesome moment that the empty tomb represented, not just for him, but for all the world, that Jesus lives, that the cross where the debt was paid was not the end, but the beginning of something. And I don't know if you know, but John lived very, very long, 120 around. And uh, I believe in all my, with all my heart that to the very end of his life, he remembered this moment vividly. He remembered this just as he had right after it had happened because it had stuck with him so powerfully. And how, how do we, in our daily walk, in our, in our daily living How do we reflect on that? What moment do we look back to as this moment of our salvation, of our uh, reflection? And I think this is important to think about, important for us to kind of bring into light and to ponder on of how we reflect on this. And for that, I want to be clear that when we're talking about our personal salvation, it's our, our salvation is not rooted in just one moment that we have or one instance or one uh, emotion that we feel in, in a various situation. But our salvation is a daily walk. It's daily denying ourselves and taking up our cross and following Jesus Christ. And so one of my favorite verses for this is Philippians 2.12, it says, and this is Paul talking, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Now, I want to be clear. This is not saying that we should be afraid this isn't about feeling fear or, or feeling weakness. It's about our journey, our daily walk with God and knowing that it's God that's doing the work. It's about a reverence. I think you could also read this scripture, walk daily with Jesus with great respect and reverence for him that is doing the work within you knowing and acknowledging that God is doing the work and it's only possible through Jesus Christ and it's all to the glory, the honor, and the purpose of God. So to be clear, there is only one moment when we talk about one moment that we should be reflecting on when it comes to our salvation, our kind of vivid moment that we look to, we have to stand with John and all of the uh, disciples. We 
look to Christ. We look to the empty tomb. We look to a risen Jesus Christ, a risen Lord. The price for all our sins was paid on the cross. And we know and we can trust and we can believe that and we can stand on it as an absolute truth because of Jesus' resurrection. Because Jesus is no longer in the grave, but alive. That is the great evidence that the work was truly finished. That Jesus won the victory. That he defeated death. Because sin equals death. Always. The wages of sin is death. There's no other alternative. Sin always leads and equates to death. But because Jesus paid for the sins that he didn't commit and died a death he didn't deserve, death had no hold on him. Death had no hold over him. And because of that, because Jesus lives, we too can live. Because we're born into sin. We're born into this world that is fallen. And he is our only hope. He's the only one who was good enough to pay that price that we were all supposed to pay. So let's daily look to Christ with reverence, with wonderment, with excitement. As John looks back on this memory, I can imagine him so filled with joy knowing what the empty tomb meant. Let's look on that day with joy, with excitement, with wonderment that Jesus Christ is alive today and that he is our risen Lord. And it's only because he's risen that we can have a relationship with him. So we're going to continue in our text now, switch gears and look at the other side of this text, the other view, the other perspective, as Mary Magdalene kind of unfolds the experience that she has. So verse 11 through 18. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not recognize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it? You are looking for. Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went 
to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. So John and Peter came and saw that the tomb was empty. And we know that they would have felt distraught. They would have felt distress, confusion, maybe even fear about what it all meant. But then they left. They went back to where they had been, where they had come from, probably to discuss what it meant and what they would do next and what was the next plan of action. But Mary stayed. She never left, unable to leave as she wept for her Lord, missing him and longing for him. And it's Mary of all those who followed Jesus. She is the first he reveals himself to. The first to see Jesus risen from the dead. Now, we don't know a lot about Mary, but I want to read Luke chapter 8, verse 1 through 3, where we kind of see her first introduced. After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. At the end of verse 3, these women uh, were helping to support them out of their own means. So Mary is actually... She's actually mentioned more than some of the disciples are even mentioned because of this significant moment of her seeing the risen Lord for the first time. But we know very little about her. We don't know where she comes from. We don't know her family history. And if you've been in church for a while or heard uh, anything about Mary Magdalene, you might have kind of get this idea that she was maybe a former prostitute I have read a lot of commentary and there's no evidence of that scripturally and the early church never proclaimed that. That wasn't proclaimed for hundreds of years after. So I just want to like clear her name. That I don't know where that started, but uh, she probably wasn't a prostitute, especially because what we do know, and that's that she, before Jesus came, had seven demons that dwelt within her. And Jesus came and healed her of that. Now, seven is usually a, a kind of a, a toned a little bit of significance throughout Scripture as kind of a meaning of completeness. And so there, I think there is a significance in why uh, it mentions that she was possessed by seven demons. There was a completeness in her hopelessness, there was a completeness in her loss. She was truly without hope. And if we look at other examples of kind of demon possessions that you see Jesus deal with, there's a pretty good chance that she would have been even repulsive to be around. Maybe foaming at the mouth, maybe convulsions, maybe aggressive. We don't know the details, but I can guarantee that she was suffering. She was not in a good place. And there's a significance in this, the completeness of her loss, of her hopelessness before Christ came. And 
She was in such a low state of despair that I believe that no one would have wanted to help her. No one would have wanted to be near her. And I think even the disciples would not have been surprised if Jesus had just passed her by, ignored her because of the level of despair and loss that she would have been in. But he didn't. He doesn't pass her by. He saved her. He healed her completely and restored her completely. And she even goes on with these other women that are mentioned, we didn't read, that to support the ministry of Jesus and the disciples. She loved him. She loved Jesus dearly. And we can see that Jesus showed great love for her as well in healing her and now in revealing himself as risen to her. I think there's something special that Jesus showed himself to her. And I personally believe it was not an accident. I don't think that Jesus was like coming out of the tomb and was like, ah, Mary's there. I guess I better say something. I don't think he was trying to, you know, "Ah, what do I do now? Mary's here. It was on purpose. And we know that because Jesus was not, you know, he was around. He had risen. And we see that John, the one whom Jesus loved, comes to the empty tomb and doesn't see him. We see that Peter comes to the tomb, the rock on which the church is built. And Jesus doesn't reveal himself to him or the two of them. But he waits and reveals himself to Mary. And I want to be clear that I don't know the full reason why he chose Mary. I don't know why he revealed himself to her and not to the disciples first, not to John or Peter first, or why he revealed himself to Mary. But there's something powerful about it. One, in that we see her devotion to Christ, that she can't even leave the empty tomb. She stays there weeping, hoping that something will make sense because of her desperate and deep love for Jesus. And I think that maybe it has something to do with her view of completeness. Experiencing completeness in her loss, being possessed with seven demons, afflicted by seven demons. But Jesus came and made her completely new. She's experienced both ends of the spectrum of completeness. She's experienced the completeness of being so distant from God that there's not, not even a glimmer of hope, not even a thought of it. And then being so complete and being and understanding the completeness and the renewing of her heart and being truly loved, being healed, being restored. which is something that we hope to understand. When we're believers, we are new creatures in Christ Jesus, as we see in 2 Corinthians. That is, we do have that same completeness that Mary had. But the thing is, is she understood it in a way that's sometimes hard for us to truly grasp. 
because she came from so far on the other side, so far away from God, so distant from him. And so it would be my hope and my longing for all of us to get this revelation that Mary had of the completeness that she was experiencing through Jesus Christ, that she couldn't leave even his empty tomb, that she clung to him in all, when all hope seemed lost. She stood at his feet as he was crucified, weeping. She was there as they moved his body. She came early the morning before the sun even rose to his tomb. She understood the completeness she had in Christ. And it's my hope for all of us to experience that as well, to understand that in Christ we truly are a new creature. We truly are renewed and complete because no matter what we think we were before, we were broken. Before Christ, we were lost. But with him, we are renewed. And in closing, I want to leave you guys with a verse we read. And just to re-emphasize it, verse 17, just the last part of verse 17, where Jesus says, I am ascending to my Father and your Father to my God and your God, bringing him down to where we are, reminding us that Jesus Christ came down and became 100% human while remaining 100% God. He came down to where we are to save us. And now, He's not dead. He's risen. He's not some great wise man that had some really great ideas a long time ago. He's not a really good wise prophet. He's not some hero of old that we looked at, for instance, in our Judges series. He's Jesus Christ. He's Lord of Lords, King of Kings, ruler of all. Savior of humanity, and he lives today. He's alive today. And I love this, my father and your father, my God and your God, painting this picture of who Christ is, that he is our everything. He's, he is our Lord because he is God. But he's more than that. He's also our king of kings and because there is no name above his name. He's our savior because we were lost without hope, complete in our sin. And now we are complete in his love, fully restored. And he is our brother because his father is also our father. And Paul talks about that we are co-heirs with Christ, that Christ even brings us onto his level with the inheritance of new life through the resurrection. And I'll invite the band to come back up and I'll leave you guys with this verse because he's also our friend, someone we truly can walk day to day with in life. And he says in John fifteen fifteen, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. How glorious it is that God has given us his word 
and made things known to us and calls us friends that we can do life and he can be a part of every aspect of who we are in our daily walk with him. So we're going to sing one more song. I want to invite you guys to stand up because we want to celebrate. We want to be excited. We want to thank him that he is alive today. And so let's praise him and celebrate his resurrection together.